Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. For a bit, we're going to talk about something other than coronavirus. But the story ahead does have at least one theme that intersects with the story that we talk about and think about and live every day. And that theme is leadership and how leaders are tested again and again. The particular leader that we're going to focus on was incredibly innovative, but he was kind of a reluctant innovator. And as it happens, he was also a reluctant celebrity. He was a charismatic person, and he knew that. And he knew that he had presence and that people listened to him when he spoke and he um, you know, used that to his advantage. So he, he was used to being sort of the person in the room that everyone gravitated around. Alexis Coe is a historian, and she notes that this fellow's gravitational pull actually distressed him. But as far as his celebrity from the war, he mostly hated it. He um, he installed this staircase in the back of Mount Vernon so he wouldn't have to be seen. People would come visit uninvited, you know, just well-wishers, but also fans. It may be hard to imagine, given that we now think of him as old hat. He is on the money, after all. But once, George Washington was America's biggest celebrity, and he had quite the fan base. Congress waived postage to Mount Vernon, so he got so many letters. It was a nightmare, and he complained about how, you know, it's not like we, we nothing was established, and so he didn't have, you know, we pay now for a retired president's office, for example. After the war, nothing was really set up except they made this decision, but he complained, you know, I've no, I don't have a secretary. Like, I'm going to have to spend so much money just to keep up with this role of being retired, of being the celebrity. Washington may not have wanted to be either a celebrity or an innovator, but once he became president, he had no choice but to create a new model for this recently invented job. Coe is the author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington, and she says he had to answer all sorts of questions for himself and for this thing called the presidency. Questions like, how partisan should a president be? How much power should they have in relationship to Congress? Who should advise them? What should they say to the American people? And how should they say it? How long should they serve? This was a job, though, that initially Washington really did not want. George Washington lived in a time of monarchies. Power had been passed from generation to generation unless there was a war. Napoleon is just a couple years into the future and he'll later complain that people expected him to be like Washington and to give up power and he wasn't. It was unheard of and it, it it's even at odds with who Washington was as a young man. He's incredibly ambitious. He's driven. He wants power. He wants to be at the center of his his country's story. It doesn't matter which country that is, if it's the British Empire, if it's, you know, this new country he goes on to, to you know, establish as a sovereign nation. But after he helped America win the revolution, he was kind of done. He set a date to give a formal goodbye as commander-in-chief of the army, which was when he noticed, on the way to the ceremony in Annapolis, that people crowded the streets to see him. People handed him letters. There were fancy balls to celebrate his victory and lots of toast to the victorious commander. And by the end of all of that, he'd pretty much had it. Washington announced he would step away. This would be the end of his life in the public eye. Back in England, 
Alexis Coe says King George III allegedly said, if Washington does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. I mean, King George really meant it because he had not wanted to let go of the country. He had worked pretty hard to hold on to it, um, to humiliating lengths. The fact that one of the greatest superpowers in the world at the time, the British Empire, who had a navy and we literally had rowboats and that's it. The fact that they had lost was... um, was overwhelming for him and he could not fathom that someone like Washington who had basically beat him and could become a peer a peer of kings um would just give up power it was unthinkable and it it made um the feat of winning the war and establishing this nation even more remarkable to the world and it was good not only for the country because Washington had worked hard to establish that you know this wasn't just a war he was winning he was nation building while he was doing it Um, and it also worked really well for him as an international celebrity. What Washington wanted was to retire to his home Mount Vernon. He had farms and land holdings with hundreds of slaves. He had lots of projects that he thought could enrich him including improving the Potomac River for trading, he didn't want much from his celebrity, except, and this is absolutely true, he wanted a mule from Spain, which was actually quite hard to get. He thought mules were fantastic animals, and because of his fame, the king of Spain ultimately did send a mule to Mount Vernon. Washington had no interest, zero, in inventing the American presidency. But... There was a problem. The problem was that the other founders who were still very much invested in seeing um, in being a part of the building of the actual nation, not just winning its freedom, would not leave him alone. They went on letter writing campaigns. Um, they kept just showing, sort of showing up. And and here's the difference. So Washington, when um, we're about to issue the Declaration of Independence, he goes to Philadelphia, he meets with the founders, and he's like, no, 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 I couldn't possibly be general. Meanwhile, he's stuffed himself into a uniform he hasn't worn in decades, and we know that he wants it. He's basically <laughs> campaigning. He goes to every church. He goes to every house. He shakes all the hands. He's running for something without declaring it. Um And then when uh, the Constitutional Convention happens, he's like, no, I really don't want to go. And and you believe him. Everything is really consistent. He shows up begrudgingly and he says, I won't really uh, have a role. And they say, fine, just be the president, just preside over just the convention. and he thinks, fine, that's it. This is this is the this is the end of it. And he he visits different battlefield sites and, and bemoans how they've fallen into disrepair. He sort of thinks this is the last. He's doing like a victory lap, mm-hmm. right? But then he leaves, and Hamilton and Madison and like all these guys write to him and say, no, no, no. By showing up and playing president, everyone built this role around you. The expectation is that you will inhabit it. And whatever we didn't figure out, whatever we didn't decide a president does and does not do, you will figure out while you're serving. And he is like, no, no, this is terrible. I don't want to do this. But at the same time, all my hard work, they continue to do this. Madison skips out on his own family's Christmas in order to go and spend it with Washington to convince him. And eventually it works. But, you know, he this is how he describes going to the inauguration. He says he is he is basically um, en route to his own execution. He has wow. everything. He has everything to lose. He knows mm-hmm. it. 
like he ha- has this incredible reputation and and what it, it could only go downhill from here. He is unimpeachable at this right, point. Right. He is the the symbol of American unity and triumph. He's a living symbol of everything that America stands for. And the a symbol in action is not, um, you know, he also, he's he's held various roles. He's been a general and he, he um, had small elected office before um, the revolution. But he's never he's not a politician and he is not um he has not had a formal education the rest the way the rest of the founders have Hmm. jefferson college of william and mary adams harvard it goes on and on washington had to drop out around 13 14 it's very self-conscious about this at the beginning of the revolution he literally buys books on military strategy and that's sort of what's happening here too so he also feels like not only am i ill-prepared they're going to see that Hmm. um He's just aware that that this this could all go horribly. It's a it's and it could go horribly either way. He's at least um, he does have this intense sense of service. And at this point, it's not ego. It's service. He wants to see it through. Um, he'll do it because they're all saying he has to. But um, he is he is he would have been just as happy to to sort of scream from the sidelines. One of the things that um, struck me in the book is um, how sort of unclear the office of the president was um, in the beginning. Like people didn't really know what it was do, you know, what it was really there for in some ways. They weren't quite sure how to address uh, George Washington. They weren't sure if they should bow to him. Um, why was there this kind of confusion initially with like, what is this job even? We went from being, well, some of us landowning white men went from being subjects to citizens um, and everyone had been a subject and so there was no protocol it, it, no one had ever known anything different in life and so when Washington is going to as he calls it his execution other people call it the inauguration he um, he bows to people because we're not a monarchy anymore mm-hmm. and that is incredibly moving to people um, and then he does have in hand a constitution almost at all times, and he's annotated it, and this exists. You, we can see it online, and um, you can see it in the archives. and And he literally writes "president" next to things that um, are, you know, he interprets to be for the president. But some things just don't work in action. And one of the examples of that is um, the Constitution, as far as uh, getting advice. It it suggests that you go to Congress. Um, And so Washington, who is used to a council of war from um, his time as a general, he, he, he gets people together, they give him his opinions, then he makes the decision. He sends Congress a bunch of questions to do with a pressing um, Indian issue. And uh, he brings along the, um, you know, person who's in charge of Indian affairs, Henry Knox, and he thinks, okay, we're going to talk about this. I've given them time. I've given them all the information they need. I've given them the questions I, I want to ask. So clearly they're going to be answers given. Oh, it's a mess. They don't even know like how to stand when he gets there. They don't know where to sit. How do they introduce him? You know, just the mechanics of it are overwhelming. And then a lot of them haven't seen him before. And here's this living legend. Hmm. They're totally overwhelmed and uncomfortable. He's just like, matter of fact, needs to get this done. And it basically ends with him yelling at them. And then what happens is he invents the cabinet. That was his invention. Hmm. It's interesting because, like, you think about now and all there's all this discussion about 
you know, how much power should the president have? How much power should Congress have? You know, gee, is Congress relinquishing their power to the president and that kind of thing? And and when you tell that story, you realize, like, how mushy these things have always been. Like, is this your thing or my thing or what? Or, you know, like, who's really in charge here? Who should Who should be in charge? That sort of thing. Absolutely. And what's amazing is we think that's because everyone has different interpretations, right, of what these guys were saying. And in fact, the founders themselves, because Madison, Jefferson, all the architects of the of this, they're there, they're alive, and they're fighting with everyone else about this. Um, you know, Madison and, and Hamilton worked on the Federalist Papers, and they managed to agree on all that and on the war. But when it came to actually governing, they were completely at odds. Um, and I think that that is a great lesson to take away. We think that we have a partisan mess. We always had a partisan mess <laughs> right, from right, the right. very beginning. Right. Um, and that I find that comforting rather than this, um, well, this fairy tale that, that we were in agreement and the founders not only understood exactly what needed to happen at the time in the 18th century, but also saw into the future hundreds of years and saw how we should be living. That to me is not very helpful. It's more of a leap of faith. I'm Kara Miller talking with Alexis Koh. She's a historian and author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. We're going to be back in just a minute with more about the man who invented the presidency in America. You're listening to Innovation Hub from WGBH Radio, PRX. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're talking about an American who set the standard for leadership, largely because we needed some kind of standard set, and he foresaw serious problems that would indeed come to plague our country and its leaders. He feared partisanship. He thought the rise of partisanship would be disastrous to the infant nation. It would devolve into infighting. Alexis Coe is the author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. He feared that later on what would happen is one party would gain power and they would do whatever it takes to keep that power, even if they didn't accomplish anything on behalf of America, on behalf of the citizens. In a moment when leadership and the qualities that we want in a leader are discussed all the time, it's worth taking a look back at America's first leader, someone who helped define the presidency and who, as Co writes, invented the cabinet, oversaw the passage of the Bill of Rights, appointed all the Supreme Court justices, 38 federal judges, 28 district judges, declared the first Thanksgiving, welcomed Rhode Island, Vermont, and Kentucky into the Union, and on and on. But he was a reluctant president didn't really want the job in the first place, was kind of cajoled into taking it. And somehow, in the early 1790s, he was talked into being the first president to serve a second term. Why? Same deal. Everyone said, you have to do it. And he he, he tried again. <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, he really tried to leave. And um, even even people who disagreed with him on almost every policy, like Jefferson, said, you know, you have to see this through. And the Constitution said that that a president serves four years. It didn't say how many terms, how many of you know chunks of four terms. Um, and so there was the idea that in order for the country to be stable, 
uh, it would be nice to have, you know, uh, at least two terms. They were looking at more. So when he was finally done, Washington was thrilled to go home to Mount Vernon. But before he left, he made a farewell address, which has gotten a lot of attention recently. Coe says there's good reason for that. It sounds kind of like it was written yesterday, or at least over the last year, especially when you think back to impeachment, which, if you can believe it, was just a little over four months ago. And what it says is, you know, beware of men who only care about power. It's hard not to see certain members of the Republican Party there who are, you know, um, applying their logic unevenly. So their reasons for not impeaching Trump are, you know, not consistent with their reasons for impeaching Clinton, for example. And then the other big thing is he warns against foreign influence. Washington says, you know, if you ask for favors, if you accept help from foreign entities, you will owe them. Um, And that, of course, has come up a lot with Ukraine, with Russian interference. Um, it's, It's really shocking how relevant it feels. Why do you think he was able to so sort of, as you're saying, like the whole issue of impeachment, no matter where you came down on that issue, it was, of course, all built around this idea of foreign interference. In fact, the Mueller report was all what 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 got that ball rolling, right? Foreign interference, that question that surrounds what role did other countries have in the 2016 election, then maybe the 2020 election when you when you go up to the issue of impeachment? Um, how was he able more than 200 years ago to, to see that that could be an issue? That's amazing to me. I mean, so much changes over time. It's amazing to me, um, that he was able to put his finger on something that clearly is, is still in the news, still an issue. When you look at each president and you look at their presidency and you sort of see that they went into it with certain attributes and certain, um, you know, they're people. They're not just these these office holders. And um, they have certain things to recommend them and also certain downfalls. And um, Washington was aware of his celebrity and also demanded respect. He was a plantation owner. He was a master. He was a general. Those are positions of power. And if someone would come into his country and try to get people to rebel, um, if someone during the war, a British ship went to his plantation and tried to get his enslaved people to leave, when these things happened, if they happened to him, he thought, oh my God, if they're doing this to me, this can happen to anyone and it is disastrous. He just saw no boundaries, no honor, no dignity in accepting, in, 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 in foreign influence and in intervention. He saw it as a mistake. And that's, in fact, you know, they were a sovereign nation for a reason. He worked really hard for that. He gave up, he sacrificed, he was away from home for eight years. Everything suffered because, because of it. So why are we then tying ourselves to other countries? Nothing good comes of it except instability. Hmm. When you think about Washington, it, you know, in the way that you've looked at him, when, which is like you've tried to look at him in, in a different way than I think a lot of historians have. Um, what do you think that we don't think about when we think about him as this, um, 
I mean, in some ways, even though he was a pioneering figure, we think of think of him as like old hat. Like he's on the money. He's on the statues. Like we've all read books about him since we were in second grade, you know, like easy reader books and that kind of thing. Um, what do we discount or not think about when it comes to Washington? Washington has been declared by his past biographers as too marbled to be real. And they usually proceed in the same way where they talk about um, the influence of his half-brother and all the battles he either did or didn't fight in. And he ended up, you know, he lost more than he won. He was a great tactician and he was working in other sort of fields. But um, they all sort of proceed in the same manner. And at the end, he gets this beautiful redemption story when he liberates his slaves upon his death, full stop. The problem is that a lot of these stories have been repeated for hundreds of years, and it is a really gendered approach, and it is also a really reverent approach. And the reason that's true is that his biographers have almost 100% been men. Um, And so I am the first trained woman historian in the last hundred years and the third woman there's been a biographer and um and a travel writer who have written biographies on him and that's um, an amazing fact right there that's just amazing to think about so many george washington you would think wow there i mean so many people have written biographies but it's just that's such an interesting thing that how few women have and I didn't quite realize the numbers. Um, I am a political historian, and I love to read several biographies in con- conversation with each other when I'm studying a president. At the end, I feel like, okay, this range gave me a good idea of, of who he is and the different perspectives on him. And that never happened with Washington. I almost thought like everyone had taken a vow and said, I'll proceed in the exact same manner. Um, and they also just didn't have a curiosity about, about certain things. Like, it's so odd to me that we don't talk about Washington in the same way we do Obama, Clinton, Ford, um, Andrew Jackson, even Jefferson to a certain extent, where they were raised by single mothers and the struggle that they experienced really shaped them. Um, and I think a part of it is, um, you know, this obsession with masculinity and manliness and things that I don't want to waste 200 pages on because it doesn't further our idea of him it doesn't break him out of this marble mold I'm interested in his body but what he did with it not just a a sort of a hero worship Um, the other issue is that uh, they tended to repeat things they weren't interested in Um, and so they would say that things had happened that hadn't necessarily happened or they would try to protect Washington from himself. And the thing is, I think that reverence, um, that's a different kind of book. In a biography, in a work of history that has end notes, we have to trust that this is a balanced approach and you can't do that if you're constantly trying to protect protect your subject. Um, so for instance, let's talk about his will, his last act. That's always um, made to seem as if he emancipated all his slaves. Um, And then they also, they talk about him being a slave master and they'll mention that he owned hundreds of people, but we only really know one person and that's Billy Lee, William Lee, who was with him throughout the revolution and, um, you know, was exceptional. And Washington then treated him that way. We know when I say he was exceptional, he was exceptional to Washington. He was his right hand man. That's not how he treated everyone. There's only one person Washington emancipated outright in his will, and that is William Lee. Now, he waited until his death to do this. Other founders, like like 
Ben Franklin, for example, emancipated his slaves. That's important during his lifetime. And, um, you know, worked hard to pass legislation to that end, whereas Washington signed the, um, the Fugitive Slave Act. During the Civil War, both sides, the Union and the Confederates, the slave holding and the free, they all went to Mount Vernon and they engraved their initials into his vault because everyone felt like he belonged to them. And that was true. They were all right. And until we really, we stopped looking at these men as either, you know, Washington's in the background or, or Jefferson is too hypocritical to study or, you know, all these things until we actually embrace these complexities, not as a good or a bad thing, but as a part of us, we will not understand what's going on today. We can't continue to whitewash and romanticize the founding era. It's clearly um, leading to the founders' greatest fear, which was corruption and decay and um, prioritizing of power over all else. Hmm. Alexis Coe is a historian. She's the author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. Alexis, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about just how reluctant Washington was to be president, we've got an article on our site about the journey that he took from Mount Vernon to New York in the days leading up to his first inauguration. Along the way, he was met with all sorts of elaborate and bizarre celebrations, and they only helped to cement the doubt he was feeling about this new role. You can find that article and lots more at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.